Hello and welcome, you fine, fine listeners out there. Thank you so much for being a member of our exclusive content feed. We're happy to be here with you. Uh, Today you are joining us for another episode of The Colette Stuff, the podcast where my co-host and I go over every single thing that Tony Colette has been in except for weird things that we don't have access to at the moment, and also possible episode arcs where she was just in, like, an episode of a television show. But all the movies, we're covering. I'm your host today, Bernadette Gorman-White, and my co-host is Mike Burge. Hello. Hello, Bernadette (laughs) Gorman-White. How are you doing? I'm great. I am very, very, very excited to talk about these movies with you, my friend, today. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. I echo those sentiments. Uh, this is the second episode of The Colette Stuff. We are covering a, a timeline for Tony Collette from the year 1996 to the year 1999. So we're really only covering three years uh, today, and those three years were absolutely bonkers for our good old pal, Tony Collette. Um, I'm just going to name the films that we're covering at the very top of the episode, and then we'll get into them one by one chronologically, except saving, of course, the big heavy hitter, which is Velvet Goldmine, which you know about because you clicked on the episode. You're interested in Velvet Goldmine, so we're saving the best for last. But yeah, so the the films that we're going to be covering today are Emma, Clock Watchers, The James Gain, and Diana and Me. Those two films... We are waiting to watch. Either they were like a weird VHS that we can't break into yet, or we haven't received Diana and me because it's on a ship and maybe it's not on a ship anymore. We don't know where this movie is. (laughs) I think I talked about it briefly on the Best of 2020 episode that it. I ordered Diana and me, which is a... um, a very uh, untimely released romantic comedy about a paparazzi chasing after Princess Diana. Woof. Um, and it was released uh, pretty much like a month after or the same month of very close to, at the very least, to when uh, Princess Diana was unfortunately uh, murdered in a car accident. Uh, or I, I guess maybe I should say died in a car. I've been watching The Crown, so like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It's still up in it, the air. It's but... up in the air, but uh, by being chased by paparazzi. So it's a very hard movie to track down. They've kind of destroyed every copy of it. And it's funny that they they had to send it to me by ship, which I don't think is a COVID <laughs> thing. I think it's like it has to get to I think my joke was it has to get to me like King Kong. It's not yeah. allowed to fly. Yeah. Um, and then the James <laughs> Gang, I have a VHS copy, but um, it will not. It's an Australian tape. It will not play in my... Um, my stateside VCR player. So I'm going to, I'm going to do some magic work and, and figure it out. I might end up having to just reenact the whole thing. I'll find the script somewhere and um, we'll, we'll go from there. That'd be fun. Maybe just throw away the VHS. Let's just do it that way instead. That's true. (laughs) So yeah, after uh, Diana and me, the last three uh, films that we're going to talk about are the boys not Amazon Prime's, the Amazon show, The Boys, but the Tony Collette version of The Boys. No, no, no. Yes. <laughs> Velvet Goldmine and Eight and a Half Women. But we'll leave Velvet Goldmine for last, as I mentioned before. So the first one up on our list to start us off today is Emma, which I had not seen ever. 
which was like totally a thing that I think a lot of my friends had watched growing up. Um, I also have never read Emma, but I've seen Clueless a million times, so I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, Yeah, Emma. That was a movie that took me some time to get into at the beginning of the movie. Obviously, it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. It was like one of her really big jumping off point that's where Gwyneth Paltrow started to get a lot of recognition um it took me a while to get into this movie had you seen it before yes okay yeah I I I am as a self-proclaimed um woke feminist icon a big Jane Austen fan uh I like honorary lady uh I don't like reading the books um it's I just haven't really tried uh the movies are all there so and they're filled with very pretty people that are very good at their jobs. So I usually yeah. rely on uh, the movies and stuff. Did we want to do the the like brief synopsis that we started halfway through the first episode last time, which seemed to, in case people haven't seen the movie? Oh yeah, we had kind of forgotten to do that. <laughs> which which one do you do you want to do this one or? Um, I'm going to let you roll with it since it was something that you had seen previously. I think Emma's probably, if you're talking plots of films, probably the one that people know about. Sure. But yeah, lay it all down, Birch. Uh, Tell uh, me what Emma's about. Emma is, if you've seen Clueless, that's what it is. So there you go. (laughs) It's about about a, um, a, uh, she's not like a, like a monarch or anything like she's just like a high standing person of uh significant wealth in the community who Mm -hmm. fancies herself quite the matchmaker um but oh dang it she can never really find a match for herself and maybe she's not even interested in that uh but she sets her sights upon a poor tony collette um who in other uh in other incarnations of emma has been played by a murderer's row of amazing actors from Mia Goth to uh, Brittany Murphy. Um, It's my favorite character in the Emma story is the character that our our sweet Toni Collette uh, plays in this Harriet, correct? Harriet, Harriet. yes, Um, you are correct. And uh, she sets her sights on Harriet to try and uh, get her matched up with a uh, different uh man seemingly every 30 minutes in an attempt to try and maintain her status quo as a great matchmaker even though she pretends like she doesn't even like it and uh you know and a bunch of other stuff happens and uh you know she falls in love with uh, someone that she may or may not be related to which <laughs> if you've ever talked to Mike Burge privately totally fine with me not going to get into it but no, uh, maybe no. maybe Clueless is where that comes from, because I was like, you know, I think Paul Rudd is related to this girl, but like, I'm kind of into it. They seem to really <laughs> like each other. Um, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if I read the book, I would obviously have a better understanding of that. But I know in the, the Clueless version, uh, he is the stepbrother. Yeah, he's like a he's like from a different. Yeah. Yeah, it's like no actual biological relationship they, between they t- the two of them. They tighten it up a bit for the 20th century. Yes, but in again, like in this Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma, not too sure about what it means that they're like, they've grown up in the same household. Uh, there aren't any moms around, so I, who knows? I think <laughs> it's like on. one of those things uh, that happens a lot with Shakespeare as well. Um, it, it's like with Jane Austen uh, stories. 
it, they're they're based on very kind of simple principles because you know all of this stuff is in almost every movie now it's in the dna of almost every story we hear or tell uh aspects of these things you know when you hear of someone kind of like uh you know uh like manipulating uh, a story you know and over embellishing a little bit it's usually because they're inserting these certain aspects that pop up in all movies and stories that we watch or read or hear these days. And a lot of that stuff comes from Jane Austen, Shakespeare stuff. So I think Jane Austen was kind of going for It's in the last place you'd ever think to look, but it's right underfoot. And it's just like, yeah, but like, it's her cousin. And she's like, who knows? Who's to say? Who's to say? We'll let your mind wander with that. <laughs> but it was it was funny rewatching this so closely to um I watched Emma um the recent one with Anya Taylor Joy and Mia Goth. Um Which I have not yet seen. I almost did a back to back, but it was like two in the morning, I think, at one yeah. point, and I was like, I'm gonna go to bed re- and then I just I wouldn't didn't recommend take the time. it. I, I watched the two with maybe about two weeks in between and I was like, This one definitely got the brunt of that because I was like, Okay, yeah. But it was interesting having the new one so fresh in my mind. And when I was watching the new one, I was thinking about this one and Clueless. And so now when I was watching, and I love the new one very much, it's probably Do my you? favorite interpretation because it's it's just very, it's got an, it's got like a Clueless attitude with an Emma, like this version, you know, the same feel. Uh, it's extremely funny. Some of the moments that are great in this movie, that new one really pulls off in singing detail. Uh, it looks insane. It almost made my top 20, but it, it was like in like those last ones to get pushed out just because uh, there, it, there's to. a lot of good year. There's a lot of good movies that year. And yeah, the, the main thing I loved about the new one, Emma, period. Uh, oh, it has a period at the end? It has a period at the end, which you know that's I fun. love. I love when they put punctuation in a movie title. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I, it's the colors in it are just out of control. You can get that from just watching the trailer. And uh, it's just extremely funny. It is, the cast is just loaded with like like Bill Nye's in it. And it's just like, it's great. It's very good. And it, it kind of sucked because I grew up watching this version and in mm-hmm. watching the new one, I was just like, oh, this is just like, it's what, uh, I know it's another adaptation, but it's like what a new adaptation or a remake should do. It really builds on all of the things that work in the original, while, like, even though this was something written, you know, 200 years ago, adding in, like, this certain kind of uh, 21st century Generation X attitude to it, and uh, it's pretty good. And Anya Taylor-Joy is... A joy, as always. It's her last yeah. name. She's doing good work, certainly. Yeah, she's really up on the rise, and de- deservedly so. Like, she's definitely earned it. She's doing some really good work. In watching WandaVision, uh, Diana, and I'm going to call her out, because it's the exclusive content. You know, these exclusive. are- These are our friends. Listen to this. These are our-, our They're part of the family. She they know kept, we love each other. She kept referring to original- um, uh, like in talking about Wanda in WandaVision and her brother Quicksilver, uh, she kept referring to Aaron Taylor Johnson as Aaron Taylor oh. Joy. <laughs> and I did not correct her for a while because I thought it was really funny, but I didn't want to be like, you know, it was a win win for me. It's like, don't correct her and like be an asshole. And also, it's kind of funny to think of like Aaron Taylor Joy. That's just a fun name. 
Uh, yeah. And finally, when I brought it up to her, I was just like, oh, it's Aaron Taylor Johnson. You're thinking Anya Taylor Joy. And she's like, oh, right. Haven't I been saying that for a bit? And I was like, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, personally, I don't really know much about Aaron Taylor Johnson. So I feel like he would take it as a compliment to be called Probably. Taylor Joy. You Probably. know, yeah. that's like a step up. I don't know. He's got the best part in Tenet. Hmm. Have Who's you heard? he in Tenet? He's the uh, he's the one that busts in halfway through, and this is a meme I love. He's the one that busts in halfway through and explains the plot, and he's just like, "Oi, oh, bruv! Yes. Oi, bruv! What's going on? Yeah, then, yeah." Have you I'm heard? a huge Evan Peters fan, so I'm go. like really digging that Evan Peters is in this. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you heard the theory that Aaron Taylor Johnson's character in Tenet is the Michael Caine character? Ooh, that's fun. It's I like way, that. It's the way movies work, don't you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I'm a person who enjoys movie theories, even if I disagree with them. Totally. I just think it's fun that people think about those things. Yeah. And are like, but what if? Right. That's cool. I'm like, that's extremely silly, but I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I didn't like admit that I was like kind of staring at the ceiling for a good two minutes afterwards. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. What a movie. Doesn't have any rules, so you can kind of just, like, put whatever things you want on it. I think that's the thing that's so fascinating about Tenet, is that it's just like, fuck the rules, but also, we have a lot of rules, but fuck (laughs) those too! And you're like, okay, great, let's do it! Cool, guys. Yeah. Um. Oh, Emma. Tony Collette. It's not a good segue, but oh, Emma. I don't know, I I think the movie is a little long in the tooth for me, personally. But I do think it's the first use of Tony Collette, like, truly being mousy, but not being bowled over. I feel like they were finally getting used to, like, this is what this actress can do really well, but let's actually give her some power in this role to, like, really play with it and have some fun. Yeah, I think if we're if we're dealing with these, because, you know, we, we kind of uh, sparse these things apart. I sent a version over to you. You uh, kind of fine-tuned it and sent a, a different version over to me. And I was like, that looks perfect because it just looked like the right amount of titles each one. And as as you said at the top of this, like, you know, this is kind of following like in this like three-year chunk where – and we're and, and that's the fun part of doing it in order is you're seeing the progression of, you know, we know that Tony Collette is going to become – uh, you know, just this this fantastic icon in cinema that's occurred in the past, like, you know, 10 years, like where she's just really risen and she's like practically a household name, but like, you know, maybe just still a little bit under the radar in some circuits. And so right. it's interesting watching her grow as someone who's appearing in a lot of these indie uh, Australian films, which is where she's from. And then like, that was definitely the first episode was kind of dealing with her taking on these smaller roles in Australian films, um, these supporting roles, and then slowly uh, like kind of graduating to Muriel's wedding, which gets her a lot of um, attention. And then Muriel's wedding is followed by what I can only assume are a bunch of movies that she had also been in before the success of Muriel's wedding, which then they pushed to the front. Um, happens all the time with everybody especially younger um, actors who at the beginning of their career are just kind of taking whatever they can get and doing whatever they want yeah Um, and then this kind of phase right here that we're going into is kind of like her like you said growing into 
a more um, dominant role, like uh, and 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 mixing around, like she's in English movies in this, and she's in American movies in this, and mm-hmm. she's slowly kind of turning into, you know, going from like Mousy's a great word, where it's like she's going from that kind of supporting, put upon Mousy role, and she's still kind of harnessing that, but also she's throwing some other stuff in here that's just like trash, and I'm like into it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And uh, again, it's worth noting that in these earlier years for Tony Collette and really like any actor, truly, but it's so weird to watch Emma and be like, oh, here she is with Ewan McGregor, like two years before then being with Ewan McGregor again in Velvet Goldmine. Totally. It's just like a revolving door of like similar actors. And that's the thing we went over in the first one, too, is like one Mm -hmm. of the most interesting things about this is like all the people in her... Uh, like in her orbit in all of these things not only just actors but other directors and other things like there's there's a lot in here that she's dealing with even back in the 90s where you're just like you know in Velvet Goldmine she's in a movie with Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, you know Batman and you're just kind of like okay and Jonathan (laughs) Rice Myers I guess a tutor a tutor the tutor he was in one Mission Impossible movie oh was he yeah, I didn't he's, know that. He's in uh, Mission Impossible 3. Ah. Jonathan Rhys Myers is, unfortunately, in my favorite Woody Allen movie, which I will never watch again. Match which is Point. just a real bummer. But yeah, he's in Match Point. And I loved Match Point yeah, when that jo- movie came out. The Joss Whedon conversations happening lately have reinvigorated my conversations about Woody Allen as well. Uh, yeah. Very unfortunate things, but... At the end of the day, uh, I don't need Joss Whedon to be cool to like Buffy. It's sure, just absolutely. Like, yeah, I'm like that's fine. It's like I, I will say I hope it doesn't get worse because you know I hope it doesn't get Woody Allen level bad, level bad, which is very hard to attain. Um, yeah, you got to be a real bad dude for that. But like you know, I haven't watched a Woody Allen movie new or old in like almost a decade. Um, right, I love those movies. Those were formative for me growing up. Like. It's really weird. I'm sure that if I really stuck myself to it, I could also be like, well, Tarantino was also kind of this, and Spielberg was definitely that, Zemeckis. But it's kind of weird that Woody Allen and Joss Whedon, I can isolate down, like, you know, Buffy and Angel and, like, the 70s, 80s comedies of Woody Allen were extremely formative for me when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, And uh, they're made by um, uh, little demon men. Uh, So... I don't know. Is it, it yeah. does it say more about me or does it just say more about men as a whole? You know? Yeah. I think hopefully um, kind of in the advent of promising young woman and this whole framing Britney Spears thing. Yeah. I think the conversation is becoming more apparent and transparent, which is great. But I also think the conversation is becoming more nuanced. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, because my takeaway from Promising Young Woman was that I, I did feel bad for the men in the movie, um, even though they were the villains. Sure. And I do feel bad for Justin Timberlake, for him just being raised in the system, just like the men in Promising Young Woman. If you are told enough times, like, you can do bad things and get away with it, like, as long as you have a good enough, like, excuse or apology or whatever, like, we'll cover for you. I feel like that only breeds worse behavior. And so for all of these men to be in like the studio system or 
being told repeatedly, like, sure, what you did might have been bad, but it's not so, so bad because you're, like, important to us because you can make money for us. Or, like, you doing well benefits us more than you doing poorly, so we're going to shove your mistakes under the rug. Doesn't excuse their bad behavior, but it does need to be recognized that they are in a society and in a system that will let them perform this bad behavior. Yeah. And we live in a society. We live in a society. This is, so. this is a truth. This is something that yeah. we know. Um, so hopefully now that we're getting to the point where we're realizing like these men are bad, but not only they're doing bad things, this is why they got to this point. We need to make sure that people aren't rewarded for bad behavior or make sure that if someone does something inappropriate, that they're held to task then and there yeah. and are given opportunity after opportunity to continue to be a bad person. Yeah. The, the, I feel like I, I, well, well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Like that's exactly like the thoughts in my head. And it's like, the whole thing is just like the idea of cancel culture, which is a stupid term. Stop saying it. The only reason that that exists is because the people who are being, quote unquote, canceled, refuse, outright refuse to accept accountability and responsibility for what they did. These things, Gina Carano, what she did is not that big of a deal. She tweeted some shit that somebody else said. You apologize for it. Change your tone realize that you were wrong and keep your job at Disney, you stupid idiot. Like, it's just that, it's that simple. And it's, Justin Timberlake is just kind of like, listen, I understand that I was a part of this problem. I had been bred to do that, but that's not an excuse. I apologize and my apology is not enough. I I am here telling you that I apologize. I'm not ignoring it and I'm going to try and do stuff. And that's, that's how you shake the system up. And that's the revolution. You know, that's right. the circular motion of everything. You have to keep it going. And it's that kind of weird thing that, like, I don't understand how people don't get that. It's like, it's, there are some things that you can do that you get canceled for that are, uh, like, you know, reprehensible and you should not be allowed to operate in any power system ever again, if not go to jail. But for the most part, cancel culture seems to really revolve around, you know, just like this bullshit where information is so out there and immediate and it's people just saying stupid shit because they think that they can say whatever they want. And it's like, yeah, you can say whatever you want, but also like anybody can not like you for the things that you say and can choose to be like, I'd like to filter you out. Like, you know, like that Black Mirror episode where you just filter out entire people. Yeah, just block them on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> like, just click a button. Yeah. yeah. The Colette stuff, where we talk about current culture as well, you know? Yeah. You gotta get I it. mean, it's true. I mean, the fact that Miramax is, like, all over Tony Collette's all over. early work, and even, like, pretty recent work, I mean, it's just kind of something that kind of per perpetuates this entire podcast series as well. Just, like, being reminded yes. every time you put on a Tony Collette movie. I mean, this is the thing. Like, you look at something like Velvet Goldmine, which we'll get to eventually, and it's just, like... Miramax and you're just like what a weird like amazing out there ahead of its time movie and it's like just because it's connected to this like piece of shit doesn't mean that it's like doesn't have something to say the man knew how to make fucking money like Weinstein was a terrible person he was very good at his job uh, yeah. sometimes uh, like you know evilly so where like the whole Shakespeare and love thing which Shakespeare and love fine film I don't know if uh, 
should have been rolling around in those Academy Awards so intently. Certainly not. It absolutely not. (laughs) The same year that Saving Fucking Private Ryan was there. Yeah, that's a ridiculous situation. That'll be a good movie, Daddy. The Saving Private Ryan one I'm saving. Mmm. Getting my Shakespeare stuff. Yeah, that'll be fun. I'm excited to continue to read those Movie Daddy articles. They're fun. Um, Yeah, do you have any concluding thoughts on Emma? I will say that I had seen Jeremy Northam a couple times and other things. He is in the Tudors as well. And um, I think he was in something fairly recently as as well. Well, um, he's in The Crown. Oh, yes, he's in The Crown. That's yes. it. And he's a treat. He was a treat to watch in Emma. I was thoroughly impressed with him acting in that role because I don't know how you can top Paul Rudd, but he kind of went toe-to-toe with the Paul Rudd character. I think he, I think he held his own. Yeah, and I think uh, Alan Cumming did a great job in that movie. That was fun to watch. He's so good. We need more Alan Cumming, man. I agree. I agree. He hasn't really been in a whole lot as of late. No, I think he's kind of past. Just kind of stepped back. Yeah, I know he owns a club in the city. Well, he's also got his amazing uh, hair, like shampoo, conditioner, uh, hairstyling line called Cum. Oh, so funny. It's fucking so great. Good. <laughs> but yeah, Tony Collette was uh, very enjoyable as Harriet. Like, really, really cute. And you can tell that she and Gwyneth have really great chemistry. Yeah. The role of fun. Harriet requires, like, a very innocent look, a very innocent style. But it needs to be able to have that third act twist where she starts standing up for herself. And maybe even, you know, I don't think they get into it too much in this version, but Definitely in the uh, the Mia Goth, Brittany Murphy versions, uh, kind of like, um, you know, Emma has created a monster uh, where yeah. she's kind of accidentally turned this person into a scornful, uh, wounded heart who is just kind of like, I'm going to fucking take everybody down with me. Who fucking cares? Like, everybody sucks. Emma, come on. You told me everybody sucks but us. Yeah. And Tony Collette is like the perfect thing for that because we know that she can do really intense stuff and we also know that she can do that mousy shit and so it's like (laughs) it's like it's kind of a perfect kind of combination of um what we know of her especially in these movies we're about to talk about and what we've seen in the past yeah yeah excellent well i'm gonna give the the listeners um a quick breakdown of clock watchers then uh please do clock watchers Super fun movie, uh, 1997. Shockingly enough, the same year that Lisa Kudrow, who was in Clock Watchers, also came out with Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion that same year. So that was like a powerhouse year for Lisa Kudrow. And uh, it stars Tony Collette as this office employee who's new to this job, this very like unsuspecting credit office space scenario. And she quickly bonds with some of the uh, co-workers in her office space, um, a group of similar-aged female employees who don't necessarily want to proactively take the system down, but they want to make sure that they aren't being overlooked or misused in their office scenario, their their workplace setting. Um, really interesting 
interplay. You have uh, Lisa Kudrow. Of course, you have Tony Collette. You have Parker Posey, like really firing on all cylinders here, I thought. I thought she was great. And then the last actress I was very unfamiliar with. Let me grab her name really quickly. Oh, yeah. Again, like I think she was the one who probably didn't break out from this film. Mm -hmm. Although maybe I'm going to say that and then I'm going to find out that she was in a bunch and I just didn't know. Um, let's see here. Yeah, Alana Ubach. Mm-hmm. Um, I was unfamiliar with her, and it's got a great uh Paul Dooley role uh playing Tony Collette's father. But yeah, this movie, Clock Watchers, predated Office Space by a couple years. Granted, it doesn't have the same zany personality that Office Space had, but I feel like Clock Watchers was a few ingredients shy of becoming like a cult classic. But for whatever reason, like, I never heard of this movie. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this even existed. And I'm not saying it's a perfect movie. But while watching it, I was like, this is fun. Why didn't people know about this? I really enjoyed it. It was pretty simple, but a really fun Parker Posey uh, role that I really love. Parker Posey really can't do any wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, no, Parker Posey slaps. It, it, this yeah. is an interesting movie because it's... um. Uh, this came out the same year that In the Company of Men came out, which I think I've talked to you about before as uh, this really small, and that's another movie that's kind of like a deep cut, like Clock Watchers, uh, that a lot of people maybe don't know about it, but like it launched the careers of like Aaron Eckhart and um, uh, Matt Malloy is in that too. And like, he's now like a big character actor. And they deal with almost the exact same thing, only it's the so in, weird. it's the inverse. And the company of men talks about like the masculinity, misogyny, and inherent fucking bullshit that comes with working in these kind of office gigs where men just men in power take control of everything and abuse everything around them and never get in trouble. And you know, Clock Watchers is almost just kind of like you know, like the, 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 the next episode of that of that TV show where it shows you the other side of it where you're right. really kind of focusing not even just with the secretaries and the women involved, but the temps. Right. Uh, it's very, they're, and they're both dark comedies, kind of. Like, In the Company of Men, I think it's a little bit darker, but I think that, I think that Clock Watchers is definitely, could be considered a dark comedy there's not really a lot of violence or intense stuff, but it is very almost satirical or like in, in what it's talking about and, and like the, the things that people do in this movie. Uh, yeah. I, I really liked it. I, I think like, you know, you talked about Emma being a little long in the tooth. I think this movie is a little fluffy um, mm. with stuff that pays off eventually. Um, so therefore I don't hold it against it. But while I was in the middle of it, I'm like, what is going on with this? Like she's getting married. Okay. Why do they keep bringing that up? Is she not getting married? And they're like, she got married. And I'm like, okay. All right. All right. Like it it was little things like that. And then I realized at the, at the end, they kind of really tie it all up in like the last like 10 minutes. Um, Yeah. And I will say that kind of the monotony of the movie, I think is uh, intentional because it is a very boring job and a boring gig. And when you get to the end and, you know, and Parker Posey is fired, it kind of comes out of nowhere. And you're like, wait, is the rest of the movie not going to have Parker Posey in it? Wait, is this almost the end of the movie? Oh, 
And I think that that all is kind of intended in there. I think that I wasn't just locked in on the monotony being a part of the craft. And I was maybe just getting a tiny bit bored. Um, But every time Parker Posey and Tony Collette showed up on screen, which is most of the time, I was at least interested in like, look at 1997 Parker and Tony just acting and having fun. Yeah, they really were having a lot of fun. And uh, Bob Balaban plays like a small role in this too. Mm -hmm. And he and Parker Posey are in a lot of the uh, like, oh, I'm blanking on his name. But Mighty Wind, uh, Best in Show. Christopher Guest stuff, yeah. Christopher Guest, there we go. Yeah, so it was uh, great to see them. Josh Molina uh, from The West Wing, of all things, uh, because I just finished watching The West Wing, and Josh Molina plays um, a character that comes in to replace Rob Lowe, because Rob Lowe's a greedy white man, um, who has, who's fine now. He was a little, he was a little weird back in the late 90s. I think he's fine now. Maybe. Maybe. Who's to say? We don't need to comment on it. Uh, (laughs) But uh, Josh Molina plays the, um, he's the opening guy. He's the guy at the the reception desk who's like waiting till 9am for her to get in there. So Um, funny. So that was really weird because I I pressed play on this thing, which is like, um, you know, this really old DVD that's in like 4-3 aspect ratio and extremely blurry. And I'm like, is that? Is that? What? And it was. (laughs) Yeah, funny way to start the movie. They're watching the clock to get into work. They're watching the clock to get out of work. And it's also got a really great turn from Deborah Jo Rupp um, in this movie as well. Oh, yeah, that 70s show. Yeah, we're watching her in WandaVision right now. Like, yeah, just some fun stuff. Yeah, again, it's 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 that orbit, that stratosphere kind of thing where you're just like, yeah, these are... Tony Collette is someone at this point, definitely in her career, that um, you know, she is someone who is on the tip of uh many a studio's tongues, and her agents are spreading her around to all of the the major uh white people continents that make movies, and really getting her out there and trying to make her kind of pop and snap because Muriel's wedding was a huge like star turn performance. And now they're like, great. Now we just need to get you in something that really gets some attention. Um, I don't think it happens in this chunk, uh, but obviously it definitely happens in the next one. Um, But these movies are like, she's, she's doing the work. I, I, as, as much as I feel weird about some of these movies and we're about to get some goofy ones. Um, Yes. I like Tony Collette very much in all of them. Yeah. Uh, Clockwatchers especially, it's a shame because while she is like the headliner, for she is the main character. She's kind of like the narrator of the story. She gets you in, she gets you out. She's not the most exciting one to watch in this film. Sure. It, it certainly felt like this character probably could have gone to an actor with probably less talent than Tony Collette. It didn't require a lot. So and I think that's something her, we're going to find, especially in her aughts career, from what I yeah. remember, like, you know, things like Changing Lanes and Fright Night, where it's like anybody could have done this, but Toni Collette shows up to play and she brings it like because she's again, she's got this this evolved sense of like um, intensity, mousiness, like that's a perfect word for it because she can really flip flop between them. Um, I, I think like it, it, it's a really good toolbox that she's working with. Yeah, I just I have to assume that the marketing 
for this film was just really mishandled and the distribution was just really mishandled. Oh, it's a very small movie. I don't think it got so I don't think it got widely distributed. I think it was a festival favorite and kind yeah. of hit it big on VHS and never really transcended into the DVD world. Yeah, it's just strange and and sad. But I mean, n- not every movie is going to get the treatment. Right. I mean, already this year I'm watching as many movies as I can, like as they are released, <laughs> so that I'm not playing up. catch up. Yeah. yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> right, <laughs> you usually fall off. Everybody does. It's true, but yeah, every year you get like we talk about it, where you know, like one of us will find a gem and we'll text it out to everyone else and yeah. be like, "This was really off the radar." That's the fun and I think, stuff. I think back in like '97, this would have been one of the off the radar ones where I would have been like, "I don't know if this will land with you, but you should give it a try." <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun, but not a lot to talk about in the grand not scheme of things. Not too much. Uh, again, just uh, I highly recommend it. Again, it's one of the harder ones on this list to find. Um, it's yeah. not really available anywhere. Um, but uh, we were able to, again, library. That's one of the best things that you can do. Libraries have all these old DVDs of stuff that was never re-released on Blu-ray or streaming. Your local library can get you everything. Unless yeah. it's some weird Australian murder cursed object that has to get to me on a barge yeah yeah i mean if it deals with murder conspiracies that are still heavily uh, discussed we should probably maybe not find that movie but we'll see we're gonna watch it i must but yeah then are you are you ready i uh, yeah can, let's do can it. you can Here you give go. the discussion yes. for what the boys is about okay the boys It's a, it's a stinky movie. It's dirty, <laughs> and, and it doesn't like you. It stars David Wenham, who is, plays Boromir's brother. Um, I know his name is Faramir. I'm making a joke. Don't, don't attack my nerd cred. Um, <laughs> he was also in Van Helsing, he which Van Helsing. is a movie that I actually really love. It's it, Van Helsing but for the is wrong fine. reasons. Van Helsing gets a bad rap. That is a that movie's doing exactly what it means to, and everybody made fun of it for it. Easy. That movie yeah. is like you know, it's parachute pants. If you're making fun of it, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boys is geez. Uh, the boys is about a guy gets out of prison. Stop me if you've heard this one. A guy gets out of prison. Yeah, uh, obviously a criminal. Um, and you think, oh, maybe he didn't do anything wrong. Wrong, he did. He's a bad guy. He's a bad dude. Uh, Tony Collette plays his girlfriend. Um, uh, everyone in this movie is trash. Uh, and they all trash each other together. And it's told in a... Stop me if I'm wrong extremely stupid um kind of point of view where things kind of skip ahead in escalating like amounts of time to show like oh something's gonna go wrong but we keep going back to the first three days um i did not like this movie too much uh if you can't tell um but uh it was enjoyable to kind of it's like watching something on fire and you're just like oh those flames are getting big and uh he attempts to uh screw over people that screwed him over and also maintain his relationship i guess maintains a strong word uh with his mother 
and his brothers and uh, his girlfriend. And um, and then he ends up doing something that gets him and his brothers in trouble and they go back to jail. And you find out in the end, in uh, one of the best moments of the movie, I think, but uh, given everything that came before is just really weird. Uh, you figure out why he went to prison and it is because he killed, to- supposedly attacked or killed uh, Tony Collette's character um, because he didn't like her anymore, uh, which is always was, a great reason to hurt people. Was that her at the end of the movie? Yeah. I, I, that, See, that I thought was, it might have been someone else, like a different woman. I, but I'm pretty okay. sure it was her because I think she was like, there's like small lines of like, she's supposed to be getting out of town because they break up and she wants mm-hmm. to leave and she's waiting at a bus station. That's why they knew she would be there, that kind of stuff. And it's, again, it's, this was another hard one to get. I had to order it from Australia uh, on DVD um and so it's only available in like you know this kind of barely 720 pixels and a lot of the scenes are very dark and gritty it was obviously shot on a very cheap camera i like the Mm -hmm. attitude of the movie and i kind of dig some of the late 90s stylings because it reminds me of a lot of other movies i have seen from that time however i think that those movies have been around for a while and that this movie is sort of more copying them than being inspired by um, and it's also, I think that the movie doesn't like what the characters are doing, but I need to know that, uh, because what the characters are doing is so fucked up. And at some points you kind of get into the boondock saints of it all, where you're like, is this thing like telling me to like that this is okay or like that this is glorified behavior yeah like we're in boondocks are like isn't it fun killing bad guys and i'm like you're not supposed to kill anybody like first off like let's heighten this with some action genre mentality or you know super comedic stuff which again not knocking on boondocks that is there boondocks unfortunately is one of those movies like scarface that a lot of people who love it kind of miss the point um, yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of Boondock Saints, but I, but I it is because I think the filmmaker didn't do enough work to show people like, no, I'm making fun of you for liking this. Right. Well, no, yeah. he got his fan base and was just like, sure. I mean, because if you've seen Boondock Saints too, you know he took all the wrong lessons from how right. people reacted to his movie. Right. Um, yeah, no, I think this movie is just a little dirty, a little too dirty for me. I like myself a dirty movie. I'm into, you know, Lars von Trier and, you know, I'm, I'm a cool guy. I read Empire Magazine from time to time. Um, <laughs> Lars von Trier, he seems so polished, like the opposite of dirty He really to me. does. Oh, I mean, he can get a little, he can be a little. A little he can get a little dirty. He can but... be a little stank. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, what what did you think of The, the Boys? Yeah, I agree with you in a lot of aspects. I do feel like as I was watching this, it felt like a student film. Like someone who was like, I kind of know what a screenplay should look like. I kind of have an understanding of the things that I've watched in the past that I really like might be a little edgy. And so maybe I'll know how to make an edgy film. And like, I really dislike films that give you time cards that are like there with this distinct purpose of telling you like, you're not going to know when this took place unless I tell you. Right. If if you can't show me, I'm not going to be super interested in your film. I, I'm a big believer of show, don't tell. And if uh, you don't have any other way to impart that information to me, that kind of tells me that you don't really know what you're doing. 
Yeah. And especially for someone like a filmmaker that I knew nothing about going into it and it looked really uh, gritty. It was going to take a lot to like win me over once I looked past those time cards. Um, Parts of it seemed really interesting. I completely understand where these characters are coming from. I think people who are trapped in poverty do have this impression of masculinity and my reputation is all I have. And I will do anything in my power to maintain the very small amount of, uh, like, masculinity that I can even hold on to. So I I could understand who these characters were. That wasn't a problem. But just, like, the mode of storytelling yeah. was very boring to me and also, like, unnecessarily confusing. Mm-hmm. It's uninspired, and you know, it's like, uninspired. I'm not saying the whole movie is stupid. I think it's dealing with it's got something on its mind more it, so yeah. than most movies of its ilk. It's just, yeah, it, it's just like the way that that story is. To, it's a good story told mediocrely and just like kind right. of uninspired where you called it like it, it felt like a student film. I was like, there's nothing more first screenplay than a, a weird uh, way to like narratively dull out uh, information what's going on by like jumping ahead in time into it. I've written like two screenplays like that when right. I was 16. Right. Okay. One was called three days till now and it fucking sucks. So like, listen, I can, I can be honest with myself about it. So boys. Right. <laughs> um, I will say I really liked uh, the actress who played the mom. I thought the mom character was actually a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, probably like the things that I enjoyed about the boys was watching the women act. And I think Tony Collette was doing fine in this. I well, think she I, knew I, the material. I, I love and... her in this. Yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's an interesting, you know, you get some real good scenes with her that, again, that flip that she's so good at. Like you get scenes of just like, uh, like heightened romance and sexuality that are immediately turned into get the fuck out of there, holy shit, and just, like, really intense stuff that you don't know where it's going to go. Because David Wenham himself is, I think, a very good actor, and I think that he is very good in this as well. It's just the character he's playing is a little... It's hard to get in line with where he's going, and maybe that's something that the movie is trying to do, but I don't think it's a benefit to my experience, where it's like, I'm, I'm having difficulty... I'm keeping this guy at arm's length because I kind of don't like him. And so therefore I'm maybe not really tracking the decisions that he's making. So when he makes these decisions, it maybe takes me a couple minutes to understand how that connects to the theme, which it all connects very well. And finally, it's not badly made. It's just badly told. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's dealing with characters that, I mean, I just think this is the way it is just unintelligent people who only think of things in a very surface level basic human needs type of motivation so yeah i think like the actors within the film are doing the best they can with what they've got tony collette included and i think it's going to be a lot of fun when we get into talking about um the united states of Terra. Mm. there's a lot of like bleed through from this era of her filmmaking like career, her filmography kind of bleeds through to the United States of Terra, which is going to be fun to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. But yeah, um, I will say out of this group of films that we're discussing today, this wasn't my least favorite. Oh. So at least it has that going for it. Bernadette. 
we are friends. <laughs> okay. And sometimes we disagree, but sometimes we think alike. Uh, if you will, if please, tell me. Tell me, someone who has seen Eight and a Half Women, please tell me what this movie is about. And oh our listeners gosh. as well, please. Okay, so Eight and a Half Women is the film in this list that I'm going to tell you about so you don't have to see it. Because really, just don't watch this movie. It's, <laughs> it's um, well, a waste of your time. But before, before you kick in real quick, have, yeah. have you seen the, 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 the Fellini film Eight and a Half? I have not, but okay. as I was watching Eight and a Half Women, I, of course, like, knew that it was going to probably be touching on it more than just the fact that this father-son duo watched Fellini's Eight and a Half and started waxing poetic on what his film means and yes. what his filmography means. So I knew it was going to touch on it. So as I'm watching the movie, I went on the Wikipedia page for Eight and a Half because, mm-hmm. um, of course, I've heard of it. Haven't seen it, even though I was a film student. Yeah, Yeah. like, that's one of the ones that I'm surprised I've missed. I probably will go back and watch that sometime soon. I think it's on HBO. I think it's part of, like, their Turner Classic Movies thing. Like, it's it's very easily accessible on there. I watched it because I saw the synopsis for Eight and a Half Women, and I was like, oh, Eight and a Half? I haven't seen that since film school. I'm going to toss that on first, because honestly, I was dreading Eight and a Half, because it didn't look good. Um, And... (laughs) I watched Eight and a Half and I was like, ah, what a good movie. I miss that movie. I wonder what about this great seminal movie uh, this film inspires from. And then I realized that this was from the guy who made it, what, the, the cook, the thief, and his wife. Uh, I can't remember the exact name of that movie, but it's uh, this really trash movie. Um Oh, I'm not sure. It it was kind of this hurricane of like, I didn't know what I was getting myself into before I pressed play on Eight and a Half Women. And by the time I did, I really knew what I was getting myself into. And I was very afraid. And I was not and I was not let down. (laughs) So, yeah, listeners, Eight and a Half Women. Please. is about a father and son who the the father is uh, a very wealthy man. He gets his money from owning casinos, property. It seems like he's just been a money mover his entire life. He's well off. And he has a son who also is kind of like following in his footsteps to also run parts of the business that his father owns. And the the matriarch of this family passes away. And the father is apparently very sexually inexperienced. And the son takes it upon himself to teach his father how he can become more in tune and have a more fulfilling sex life in very disturbing fashion, which we will get into. And the father-son duo decide to open up their family manor, which is now empty, even though really they've only lost one person who lives in this family manor. So all of a sudden they're like, this house is empty. And the son says like, well, we should just invite women who owe us into this household to basically just like, be our sex slaves essentially but presented to them in such a way that they feel like they are benefiting off this deal as well and let's see how these eight and a half terrible highly offensive terrible (laughs) i was like where's the half come from and as soon as i found out it it is um a woman with no legs fun Uh, i was like I was like, I wonder how eight and a half women, like where the half comes from. And I thought about the different ways it could come about and none of them were good. None of them. I was like, is one a child? Is one um, a dwarf? 
is one. And, and then they were just like, no, a- she's got no legs, motherfucker. And I'm like, oh, great. Thanks. Appreciate it. There was really only like one worst possible option in my book, which would have been like a transvestite character or a trans woman character. I was really afraid we were going to get into like a crying game situation, but it was so close to already being that terrible that it's like nothing was going to make me feel like this film took any good steps, to be honest. (laughs) Um, I will say I'm curious um, what your experience with watching the film was. Where I watched it, the the beginning of the film is kind of like intercut with like scenes of buildings that this company owns mixed into the father signing, getting this corporation to sign these contracts to sell their businesses to him. And so the beginning of the film opens up in a really cool technical way, which picked up my interest immediately. And they do have these like intertitles like cut into the different parts of the film so the film is separated into five different parts yeah and when you get like a new uh flash of like what part of the film you're watching you actually see like some of the script behind it and you see like the setting kind of like uh, west anderson where it's like oh it's a novel kind of thing yeah right and uh that might be the most interesting part of the film and i was just very disappointed so listeners at the very beginning of this film, when the mother passes away and the father or the, the son comes back home to console his grieving father, uh, the, the son seduces the father into having sex. Yeah. And uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, which it should, that's what you're dealing with for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like you're, you're nervous that they're going to sleep together again for the rest of the movie. And so for me... There was, like, nothing the film could do at that point. Like, I was already like, whew, I'm gone. <laughs> like, yeah. this is crazy. Yeah, I, I looked up the director's name because I couldn't remember off the top of my head. It's Peter Greenaway. He okay. is a notorious, like, he's done uh, night watching. And, again, like I mentioned, uh, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Um, these are movies that are just generally, I want to gross you out. I want to make you feel uncomfortable. Ain't I a stinker? He's an ain't I a stinker kind of director. Um, I don't like this movie. Uh, I'm mad that I watched it. Uh, This will happen, I'm sure, throughout this show. Probably not to the degree that this one is because I generally just... I get it. And I almost don't want to. You know? Like, I get what he's doing. I understand the... The ridiculousness of sex and the ridiculousness of relationships and, oh, the ridiculousness of being wealthy and poetic and treating women like objects. But then what's so wrong with that if they want? I get it. And I'm just like, I don't want to watch this right now. If I'd watched this like maybe 10 years ago, you know, when like Iron Man just came out, (laughs) I might be like, cool. Good job, everybody. What a weird little fucking movie send it to some friends and be like, I watched this really weird thing. Right now, I'm just kind of like, I don't have time for this shit. This was the movie that I was saying. Like, I had to put my phone, like, out of arm's reach on the other side of the room. So I just stopped checking, like, COVID-19 percentages and stuff because I was just getting... It's it's an uncomfortable movie uh, because it's supposed to be. And I guess in that way it works. But I did not have fun watching it. And... 
as opposed to like the boys, which I didn't have a whole lot of fun watching. There were aspects of the boys where I was like, that's good filmmaking. Uh, I kind of like, I kind of like that story twist. This acting is very good. I kind of like this style. Eight and a half is just kind of like, it's got a bunch of stuff in it that like I visually enjoy. It's just all of sure. it is just so kind of, it's not a movie for me. And it could be a movie for you, dear listener. And that's fine. Uh, I didn't enjoy watching it. And I was actually really excited to talk to you about it. Because <laughs> when I'm watching these movies, I'm like, Bernadette is going to watch this. And I'm trying to think where like she's at with this. I was like, I hope she doesn't watch this one with Heath. Because that, who knows what the fuck is going to happen with that shit. <laughs> yeah, actually, Heath was on the computer while I was watching this movie. There you go. And yeah, as soon as it started happening, I told Heath, I was like, dude, I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> like, this this is making me uncomfortable, and it takes a lot to make me uncomfortable. Yeah. So I was like, well, uh, I'm really sorry. It looks like this is the first 10 minutes of the film. <laughs> I guess this is what we're stuck yeah. with for the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's like, I like being made uncomfortable in movies, you know, intentionally for, like, the craft of the film and stuff. And that's, sure. what, that's what this movie is doing. That It's just, like, a very prolonged uncomfortable experience and that's what he's going for right um, i'm just not into this version of it this was made uh you know over 20 years ago i get it but it's just like one of those things where i'm like not into this dog that's not this is not uh the story that i want to unfold before my eyes through the magic of cinema right now yeah it it really was all pretension, but for what? It's like, an extremely pretentious movie, and that's kind of the thing where it's like, all right, I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, what, what I will say for the film is that, like, the cinematography is pretty good. Yes. The, the costume, the set design, all of that's enjoyable. I really enjoyed uh, his main girlfriend's character, and I liked the casino scenes. I thought all of that was really enjoyable Pretty to cool watch. Stuff. Yeah, in the casinos especially, you're right. Like that is cuz that's a world that we don't really find ourselves into often. Yeah. And like the really seedy ones too, not yeah. the flashy ones. Mm -hmm. Cuz you you get like, you know, in Lost in Translation, like it all looks like hyper realistic Hyper, yeah. and super and fun I but this I is lived not. in Japan for a couple years and it's like you know humble brag but it's like uh, <laughs> it, it's like you get weird dumb shit like that where it's just like this is a weird weird thing that everybody is just like this is normal like crane machines on the street that have like you know used panties and right. like balls you're just like this is fucking really weird for me because I'm not used to it it's a, it's a culture shock kind of thing and I do enjoy how the movie really utilizes a lot of that, especially with the variety in the eight and <clears throat> a half women. Um, there's definitely, you know, I think maybe I was finding the, 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 the titular women more interesting than the two main characters. Because yes. I kind of just like they're the interesting ones to me. And I'm not sure if that was an intention. It very well might have been. Um, but I will. I just, I, I found the time spent with these characters uh, more interesting than the time that the movie predominantly spends um, with this, like, little fucking dipshit and his dumbass dad. 
Yeah. And you could tell, like, even for the female characters, you're like, oh, you are still being written by a man. Because, yeah, like, even with the, the one character who's, like, into having sex with her pig, it's just like, all right, guys. Okay, wrap it up. <laughs> like, let's keep this thing moving. I get, um, I get it. Right. I get okay. it. This is the one I will say that Tony Collette, I don't understand why she took this role. That's I I one. don't get it. And I think this is probably one of the only times that I'll watch it and think like this accent is bad. And mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> why you're playing this character in this way, probably because you're being told to. But I, I just don't think there was anything to work with here. So I feel no. like any actress who would have taken that role kind of would have been up a creek without a paddle. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a lot like her character from, um, oh, what was it? Uh, where she played kind of like the goth. Cosi. Cosi? Cosi? Oh, Cosi. Cosi. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's just a very kind of quiet character, kind of detached, and... Uh, just gets like everybody just gets naked a lot in this movie and i'm like fine um i still think it's very weird uh seeing tony collette naked um in many of these earlier movies which is just kind of like a product of not only what was kind of expected out of uh certain actresses uh in this time but it's like you know you watch like tony collette is like royalty right now like at at this point in our at this point in like you know 2021 like she's an amazing thespian act character actor right and it's like uh, we were talking about i watched carol um because it's by todd haynes who also directed the next movie we're going to talk about and in it it's like you know you have rooney mara and there is a spoiler alert sex scene between kate blanchett and rooney mara and you see rooney mara um you know torso up uh, pretty flagrantly for the situation, but Kate Blanchett, you know, uh, Hollywood treasure is kind of hidden. And you expect that out of, you know, actors of a certain caliber, like you're not going to see too much of this person who is a respected icon, but you go back to the earlier days and you're just like, Oh yeah, you can see Tom Cruise's penis in this movie or like, Oh, you can see this person's boobs in this movie. And it's just very intense because Tony Collette, you know, in many of these movies right now and ones that we've watched before is, um, you know, to her credit, unafraid if it was kind of like her choice, which I'd imagine in some way, you know, she can walk away, but also at the same time, could she, you know? Right. It's hard to say. And so it's one of those interesting things that happens where you're just like, It's this is someone who has been super famous for like over two decades. And this is like the previous decade of her fame and someone just trying to like get the gigs and work with artful artists that want to do artful things. And this movie is um, pretty sure trying to be artful. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this movie fancies itself an artistic experience. Yes. I believe you are correct, and sadly. the nudity lends itself to that, but it is definitely something that continuously is disconcerting just about every time it happens. Yeah. Again, intentionally, most likely, just not my bag, dog. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, because a lot of the time that you see a lot of female nudity, you want to say, well... Of course they were going to show the the women nude, but then you also see the men nude just as often, if not more so, than these 
than these ladies. So then you do have to wonder, like, well, at least it was an equal opportunity employer. Like, sure, <laughs> everyone was naked in this movie. Yeah, I I think that has to be the oldest penis I've ever seen in my life. Like, eventually I will see another penis from a man who is that old, but not for a while. <laughs> That's... You're such an optimist. <laughs> Not for a long you're time, always, hopefully. You're, you're always looking ahead. You got a plan and you're sticking to it. That's yes. great. Yeah, I have been living in New York for a while, but luckily have not seen any like unintended penis on the subway. So. Well, you can't, you can't really get into the YMCAs that I attend, so. Mm, no. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> That's okay by me. I think I'm all right. But yeah, just what a... That's a movie. That's the tagline. That's a movie. That's it. I'm fine never talking about it ever again. Eight and a half. Great movie, though. Yeah. Well, we watched it. And it's got maybe... nothing to fucking do with this movie. Like, it's like they take the brothel scene in Eight and a Half, which is like an interpretation of his guilt with how he's treated women, but also, also like the substantive nature to which he clings to it and it's his identity. And they're just like, I guess we'll get a bunch of women to fuck in this house i'm like that's not okay sure great yeah it really did seem just from reading the wikipedia page that yeah they were like <laughs> they, they thought oh yeah like this is something that this man was dealing with i think i understand the plight of how a man could feel that way oh but let's ignore the guilt entirely and just have a house full of naked women and again probably the point but like if you get to a you get to a point when you're making a movie where everything is so silly and ridiculous where you're just like, that's the point of the movie. I'm allowed to not be cool with it. Like that's, I don't want this to come across as I'm like, I like what it's doing. I understand it. And I think a lot of it is done fairly intelligently. Some of it, not a lot, some of it, a few things are done intelligently. Just at the end of the day, it's not entertaining and it's not my... I don't like that kind of shit. And I like weird shit. You like weird shit. We're weird Agreed. people. We like weird, dirty, nasty shit. We like the boys somewhat. You know, it's like... <laughs> it, it, it's just like, for a movie to kind of rub me that way, it's kind of hard for me to articulate, but it's just something where... It's like when you meet someone you don't like, but you've never met them before. It's something like that. It's that feeling where you're just like, I don't fucking like this guy. Yeah, and I bet I'm going to find out after hanging out with him for two years, you know? I think my favorite thing about Eight and a Half Women was all, like, the fact that the house was full of milkshakes all the time. That was my favorite part. I was like, what's up with all these milkshakes that are constantly just, like, laying around the house? Hmm. Hmm. Art. Art. All right, well, let's get into the... The nitty gritty. The big the, guy. The big guy. So I'm going to actually hand it over to you to give an explanation of what Velvet Goldmine is, okay. considering you imparted to me that you thought you had seen this movie, but you haven't. I had not. I, I have seen uh, many a scene from Velvet Goldmine. I've listened to the soundtrack. Uh, I was aware of the story. Who was in it? I'd seen a lot of images, clips and everything. And I I think that I had just worked in my head that I had seen it. It's possible that I've seen this while hanging out with a bunch of friends 
maybe not really paying attention too much or maybe not even finishing it and just thought that I did because as this movie progressed, I realized I I have not seen this movie Um, and I love it. It's an amazing movie. Uh, It tells the story of um, a um, pop singer, uh, David Bowie-esque character, uh, his rise and his um, cohortship with a kind of uh, Iggy Pop, Jim Morrison hybrid, uh, kind of like Lou Reedish kind of uh, character uh, played by um, teen teen heartthrob Ewan McGregor. Yes. Uh, Jonathan Rice Myers plays the David Bowie esque character, um, and they uh, it's following um, their kind of rise and their. Uh, their stardom in the um, UK music world told through the narrative of um, a young Christian Bale, but not too young, just, just outside of American psycho Um, Christian Bale, uh, who is a uh, journalist who is writing a story on the 10 year anniversary of a faked uh, shooting of uh, Jonathan Rice Myers character. Um, what uh brian slade brian slade brian slade or yeah. uh what is it maxwell demon maxwell demon um and in it we see christian bale's connection with these characters as a fan and um in some scenes as someone who was there during uh big moments and uh it, it and tony collette of course the subject of this podcast plays the um, wife of Brian Slade, uh, who also is the primary, I would say, like the biggest chunk of the movie. It it it, it works through people talking to Christian Bale's character about what happened, very biopic esque, and Tony Collette's character is the one that has like the most major chunk in the middle, giving the big roundabout of everything that happened. Um, and she's very good in it. Everyone else is very good in it. It is a very good movie. It is directed by Todd Haynes, who is a very good director. Um, I watched Carol immediately after this as well, which I also love. Carol is a very special movie to me now, and I will watch it every Christmas. Um, And it's got a hell of a soundtrack that I can't wait to uh, waste a hundred dollars on a on a vinyl <laughs> to have because they only made fifteen hundred of them a few years ago. And really, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, it's like there's one on eBay right now floating around for like sixty bucks, and I'm just like, I have no money. I can't do. I can I can barely eat cup noodles, but like <laughs> I want this so bad. That's a very cool soundtrack. It's a very cool soundtrack. Uh, me and Diana as um. Uh, music lovers Uh, we're having a lot of fun trying to pick out the more uh, eccentric takes like you know you got your t-rexes you got your lou reeds you can you can pick those up um but you know there was a couple like deep cut brian enos in there and there's some there's some weird weird shit in there like um what is it the furs of velvet and uh, there's a bunch venus and furs venus and furs like there's a lot of there's a lot of good shit in there where I'm like, I haven't heard that fucking song in forever, which I think a lot of it comes from my dad in the nineties, uh, when he showed me deep purple and I was like, fuck this shit. And he was like, well, how about this stuff? And I was like, Oh, I like that where he showed me like Frank Zappa, David Bowie, Lou Reed, stuff like that. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, this movie slaps. Love it. It's great. Yeah, this movie was very formative for me growing up. It was probably like the first movie that I watched that really like maybe questioned things. Um, I was familiar with David Bowie's music, of course, but I really like that this film takes all of this counterculture movement and really makes art out of it. Granted, I'm not saying that the movement themselves or, you know, the music that was coming out that this movie is based off of wasn't making art, but like my young brain at the time wasn't really recognizing the impact that those movements had on like the music that I listened to at the time. I I didn't see the influence that David Bowie or whoever had made on what we were listening to in the 90s um, until watching this movie. This, like, put it in context for me. Because, you know, I was fairly young when this came out. I was, like, maybe 11, 10, 11. And I don't think I saw this right right when it came out either. I think I saw this, like, probably towards the end of junior high. But, yeah, I'll remember this is the first movie and I was like, boys can look like that. That's pretty cool because, <laughs> like, the emo phase was, like, just starting to happen and, like, men wearing makeup, when men wearing, like, tighter clothes, all very, very huge staples of, like, the types of crushes I had in high school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to, like, see a movie that so closely admires and also, like, pays homage to that uh movement that took place in like the late 60s 70s 80s was very cool and yeah this movie is just like tops for me the costume design the set design the story it tells the music right up my alley this is a burn movie for sure yeah i was really excited as i was watching it i was just like oh jesus (laughs) this is it's got burn written all over it Mm -hmm. you know it's it's uh the the moment in it you know because I don't know exactly how much you want to talk about the movie's so good. It's hard to isolate. Um, I got goosebumps like, like out of nowhere. I don't think I've, I can't remember a time that I've gotten goosebumps as hardcore, as fast as when Christian Bale is watching on the TV set, the interview with Brian Slade and someone asks him like, what do you think about, People thinking that you're uh, like homosexual or bisexual or something different and weird. And he says, he's just like, well, I mean, it doesn't really matter what I think about that because it's none of their business and all of this stuff. But also at the same time, I'd say that they're probably right. And everybody freaks out in the thing. And Christian Bale's parents are behind him. And he's, and you see that shot of in his head of him standing up screaming like, that's me, dad. That's me. That's me. Like screaming at that. And then you see it's not real. And it like, I got goosebumps again, just talking about it because yeah. it's just, it's, it's such a, it's such a normal, normally staged shot. The framing and everything almost looks like, you know, a leave it to beaver like kind of clip like it, it's it's very staged and very normal and open christian bale is full-bodied uh pointing down at the tv you see and it's and you know kind of what he's going through before that uh christian bale's performance in this is my favorite one which is very weird because it's very good because jonathan rice myers and ewan mcgregor are allowed to really let themselves go 
in um in a performative way based on like the performative nature of their characters but christian bale in this is just like what what a fucking good actor like he's just so good that i don't even care about that time he was a dickhead on the terminator set you know it's like the the more distance we've gotten between that too it, it's just become funnier even though i remember <laughs> listening to that on the radio the day after it happened driving into work yeah it's like they were playing it on the radio and yes dear listener i used to listen to the radio in my car instead of just podcasts oh yeah that's true occasionally remember i'll that? still listen to the radio every now and then it's just the classical station now though because like I'm a I'm a serial killer and I like to drive around Poughkeepsie, New York at night listening to Bach. I mean, that doesn't sound too bad, but maybe it's because I know you. But I drive real <laughs> slow. That makes it even worse. You I shouldn't have said eye, that. <laughs> I make eye contact with people walking in the streets and flash my high beams. <laughs> and I crank the orchestra they can hear me. That's so funny that you mentioned that scene because I think every time I watch Velvet Goldmine, I forget about that scene. And yeah. it's like something that my brain makes me forget so I can appreciate it just as much every time I watch sure. it. Because, yeah, that that is a heartbreaking scene. And it's probably the most human scene it's within a, the entire it, film. It's a very human movie filled with human scenes. And that one in particular is very small in many ways when compared to like a lot of the other great human moments of the movie it's a very mm-hmm. and it's very quick it's you know we're talking like this is like maybe seven seconds oh out yeah of like a two-hour movie and it i just remember it, it hit me so intently because like the movie was just like wrapping me up in its warm embrace from the very beginning where i was just like who the fuck's jack fairy i like this guy um and that's the other thing about the movie that's so uh magical is just like it's complete disregard for um realism and um certain aspects of continuity that you come to expect from musician biopic movies like this the fact that they are so blatantly this is david bowie this is like jim morrison iggy pop like but they're able to, it's kind of fun. It's like, what if David Bowie and Jim Morrison were friends? You know, like, what if they like operated at the same time and they were friends and maybe even more? And it's like, well, you can't do that because they're public personalities. You can't just make them do stuff. And it's like, cool. This guy's name is Brian Slade and this guy's <laughs> name is Kurt Wilde. So they're going to fuck and <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, I love how egregious the the Tommy Stone character is at the end. His logo with like the way that the the T is broken up is so funny. It's great. It very big like um, you get some very big Las Vegas vibes uh, going on with that guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's phenomenal. Yeah. The whole movie. um, Again, when I was young, I wasn't quite like. I didn't have the tools yet to fully understand what this movie was when I was younger, which I also think is a really important thing to see it like with a child's eyes. It brought me into it with such like a naivete when I first saw it that I think it equipped me with like the right human skills to understand humanity on a deep level. Um, My mom, of course, did not know that I was watching Velvet Goldmine and between this and uh, Train Spotting. Like, Ewan McGregor was 
the guy whose penis I had seen twice before I ever saw a penis in real yeah. life. Which Talking is about <laughs> nudity. He's just like, he, like he's when like, that who cares? Scene happens in this movie. I was like, Diana, that's Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're like this is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that it's giving you such like a cool creative analogy of like saying like the homosexual experience is an alien experience and that's the problem with it and it's so beautiful and interesting and creative that we need to make sure that we have space in our lives to appreciate that instead of keeping it removed on a stage and idolizing it from afar but not accepting it in your real day-to-day life and it was just like such a powerful message to learn as a child even though i didn't understand like what it was teaching me and it's just a really cool movie and like so cheeky to include like oscar wilde at the beginning of the film with like the little amulet crystal Mm -hmm. that gets passed down from you know influential pop personality to influential pop personality and i love that brian slade stole it so like the main character yeah yeah the main character that you're following throughout the course of the film isn't the rightful heir to like this legacy but he was just cunning enough to steal it from jack fairy so it's just like really a fascinating story there's so much going on here and, there uh, is. Oh, like, it's crazy. So much. And the movie is not really um, concerned with uh, like the continuity of it and everything. They're just kind of like, you like this movie. It's a good movie. You're going to watch it a bunch of times. You'll fucking figure it out. Don't worry about it. Like It just kind of keeps going. And right. uh, loads of awesome side characters are our, our dear Tony as well. Um, again, it's one of those performances of hers that is just very... Uh, very sweet and honest and free at first and slowly becomes tarnished you get uh you get an amazing some amazing dramatic work out of her uh that was a breath of fresh air in these groups of movies um when she when she uh kind of uh confronts uh brian slade uh when he's like in bed and his hair's all overgrown and he's doing coke off some guy's ass and you're just kind of like this is a scene right here. This is this is a moment. And then Shannon walks in and you're like, Shannon. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's got some incredible work from Tony. And I had already mentioned earlier that I've never seen Eight and a Half. Well, I hadn't seen Citizen Kane until a couple years ago. Well, like a year and a half when you when we played it at the theater. Yeah. I hadn't seen Citizen Kane up until that point. And yeah, to find out that Velvet Goldmine is like a modern telling of Citizen Kane was also so cool to be watching Citizen Kane in the theater and like seeing pretty much the scene where he hunts down the ex-lover and she owns this bar and he's interviewing her and it's raining and you go in through like the skylight and walking out of that movie, I was like, that's like Velvet Goldmine. (laughs) Like this movie that I've grown up loving like it was just very cool and i love that scene with tony collette like in the bar smoking cigarettes no longer speaking in her fake british accent mm-hmm. like it's the work that she's doing in velvet goldmine i think was like the first time that you're seeing her and you're like oh yeah you're gonna be an american star like you're yeah. breaking out of australia yeah it's like, I, I this is a star making movie this is uh a very like 
small level development movie that was given a lot of money to do a lot of stuff because they were like, this director is going to be huge. Um, that the, you know, they gave, the, uh, we were talking about Carter Burwell, like, uh, the composer, like this is the Coen brothers guy. They pushed that on over to him. Like, this is a movie that they put a lot of energy behind. We're, we're getting you, you know, we're getting you the Ewan McGregor and we're getting you the Jonathan Rice Myers and we're getting you the Tony Collette and Eddie Izzard is going to appear in a small role. And we got this, you know, the Newsies kid from Empire of the Sun is coming on in. Like they stacked this movie because it's like a surefire gangbuster hit because it's loaded with so many people and it's about such a easily approachable especially in like the generation x kind of big thing moment like they were like this is going to be a big hit and it's a huge cult movie um and almost every single major person in it is like insanely famous at this point you know jonathan rice myers i think is much more of a low-key flavor yes Uh, but kind of in the same way with tony collette i i think tony collette is more famous than jonathan rice myers but i would imagine the general public would hear both of those names and be like "Mm." right who's that but they but you say like the mom in sixth sense or you know the dude from the tutors like the dude on that poster that you see on the subway all the time it's like oh that guy yeah yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely i think this movie's very smart it hit at right the perfect time i think right now i mean i can't think of anything that even like hits the same way that velvet goldmine does i think it's a completely individualistic film which is very impressive yeah, I mean, and it's funny, too, because, you know, it's got a lot of the stuff that Walk Hard is amazing at just, like, slandering. You know, sure. it's got that <laughs> biopic stuff that, but I will say that when I watch a lot of biopics, even when they're older, and it's before the biopic tropes became very tiresome and maybe seeming a little lazy, like, you're like, oh, they haven't become lazy yet, it's okay. This movie, I don't, I think does a lot of that stuff, but doesn't do it lazily and doesn't do it any in any boring way. Uh, there's not a lot about this movie that you could argue is boring. Um, it's no. a treat of a movie. I, I absolutely love it. I want a poster of it up on my wall and I want to talk to people about it uh, always. Yeah. It's super fun. Uh, you have like all of those glam rock aspects to it. I love the scene where they're shooting like the cover story to like make Brian Slade an American superstar and they're like shooting all the pictures and that's a super fun scene. It reminds me of Blow Up, which is one of my favorite movies about photography. Yep. And But then you also have like those super humanizing scenes, especially at the end where the Christian Bale character is talking to the Ewan McGregor character in a bar, in a dingy bar. Yes. Like they just somehow like managed to toe the line between those two worlds and they do it beautifully. Yeah, it's just, as you said, a treat to watch. Yeah, just like the, you know the magic and beauty that can just be kind of slapped on memory uh, with how the real world looks and feels and smells. Uh, and, and you know, the only difference that you can tell in this world is, you know, the length of Christian Bale's hair is where you're at. And w- what a thing to measure uh, the world and reality around you. Um, <laughs> his performance is this absolutely crazy. It's It's really nuts that I was like, the Jonathan Rice Myers Ewan McGregor movie, right? And then coming out of it, watching it for Tony Collette, uh, with those other kind of hangups like ready to go, Christian Bale was the one that just like steals this movie for me. And 
it is one of the more quieter performances, which is why I think it's so, you know, there's a scene of him looking in a mirror at one point. And I'm just like, this is, he's good at that. He's good at looking in mirrors. Um, it was, it was really surprising to me because, um, I love you and McGregor and I love Christian Bale. I'm not saying I don't love him. And obviously I love Tony Collette because I'm embarking on this journey with you because we, we love the queen so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really odd that uh, this kind of formative Ewan McGregor film uh, was really kind of taken away by uh, Christian Bale. And it was, I had, I just did again, the movie daddy, uh, the Spielberg retrospective series. I just did empire of the sun. And so I had just gotten done kind of really digging into Christian Bale's kind of earlier career. Cause I was trying to place him like where he went after this and kind of how it catapulted him. And I ended up scrapping a lot of those notes and kind of just kind of focusing on Christian Bale in the movie empire of the sun itself you know me and tangents, I can go a little crazy, especially when there's no one else around. Who, you? Yeah, me. You? Um, Get out of here. It, it was kind of interesting because that's, I was in the Christian Bale kind of fan club uh, still when I watched this movie. Like that was still in my head where I had all that information from like the first like, you know, 15, 20 years or so of his career. Uh, and it is very interesting that it's like right here in 98, like he just like hits this thing and then it's like, it just, he just catapults and like, you know, it's, it's weird to think like seven years after this, he's Batman in 2005. Yeah. Like it's, you forget that it's like these late nineties movies are just like, they're only like half a decade away from, you know, your Shaun of the Deads and your it, like, this movie's only like a year away from the sixth sense. But it just feels like another world. Oh, it really does. Yeah, absolutely. Even like about a boy feels out of time compared to like Sixth Sense. And yeah, like Batman Begins. 2005. It's wild. Yeah. It's a good little journey. I think this is probably going to be the weirdest episode. Uh, I, who I knows? Mean, who knows? Kind of, I, I, we've got some weird ones coming up in the next one, definitely. Uh, some that I've seen and some that I haven't. But this is, I think, kind of, for me looking at it, it looks like this is going to kind of be the end of, like, the really unknown ones. But we also have weird shit where it's like, you know, how to lose friends and alienate people eventually. Like, who fucking saw that movie? Like, we all know what it is. Right. We've heard of it. Right. But I had plans like, to no see it. No one saw that. No, everyone had plans to see it, but we didn't. You know, and you got weird stuff like uh, the hours and changing lanes. The magic pudding I'm really excited about. When I looked ahead and saw the hours, I was very happy to see that because I have seen that movie once. Really don't remember a single thing about it. So I'm Same. excited to watch it again. Same. Like that movie came out when I was like... I, I just wasn't appreciating cinema. Sure. And I think I watched it on like Cinemax or something. And I was just like, it's kind of boring. Nobody's doing anything. But I was like, probably like, I don't know, 16. Who knows how old I was when I saw that movie. <laughs> you just weren't ready. I was now like, you're I, ready. I got to get out there and do kickflips. I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> yeah, I watched it, I think in college. 
But during college, I was watching things to, like, distract myself and also procrastinate from doing actual homework that I had to do. Mm. So I feel like a lot of watching films in college was more of, like, gone. You know, like, in one eye, out the other. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm pretty excited about this next group of movies, too, because that's one of the fun things about this is, like, we're given a month to kind of watch these, like, you know, seven or so movies and you can see all the other ones that are coming up and you're like, I can't wait to watch that, but you can't touch it until, right. you know, we record the episode. So now I'm just like, oh, I get to watch The Sixth Sense, my sweet, sweet Sixth Sense. I get to watch Changing Lanes and Shaft. I'm excited. And about a boy I'm really excited about, too, because that's I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Yeah. And I'm a big uh, I like me some, you know, teen heartthrob era Hugh Grant. Yeah, that's a good one. A little young baby Nicholas Holt. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to witness him. We're going to witness him. We're going to witness him. (laughs) But yeah, do you have any last remarks about these films in particular or anything you would like to plug? Uh, I mean, Movie Daddy, I talked about a lot. Check that Mm -hmm. out if you're listening to this and you're an exclusive member at the time. That's all available to you. Some of them are public. Uh, I really enjoy doing them. Um, I think I'm getting better with each one. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm excited to finally start breaking into. I didn't want to do all like the major, the big ones. I didn't want to do it chronologically. I wanted to jump around so I could mix up some stuff. And now I'm kind of excited. I've I've hit like his comedies and his serious movies. And now I'm like, all right, Indiana Jones. That's uh, the next one we're doing is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I'm excited about that. Um, and, uh, yeah, go, go on the store and, uh, buy like a mug. If you don't have one yet, you gotta have those things. We're going to run out eventually and you're going to kick yourself for not having them. That's true. Yeah. I would just like to plug for you, dear listeners, as part of our exclusive family, you can hear it first here. Uh, we're going to be doing some really fun giveaways in the next few months. We're going to start doing some fun little weird giveaway prizes. So uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter at story underscore screen. And then at Instagram, we have a lot of Instagram followers. So I think we're doing okay there. But if you aren't aware, if you aren't aware of where we are on Instagram, we're at story underscore screen underscore beacon. And then on Facebook, on the good old reliable Facebook, where you can find us is story screen beacon New York. So yeah, make sure to find us all of those places. Uh, We're going to start implementing these fun giveaways in the next few months. So just keep your eyes peeled for that. Other than that, you're doing the the Lord's work being a dedicated subscriber to the exclusive content. So thank you for being awesome. Yeah. And thank you, Burge, for joining me. Oh, go ahead. Did we want to rattle off uh, what the next episode's going to be? Sure, go for it. Like at least what we're aiming for. Like, you know... Uh, the James gang and Diana and me, which is left over from this, those are now our, you know, our um, our boxes uh, waiting in the wings. Uh, whenever we can get to them, we will cover them. Uh, but the next episode, definitely the set is going to be um, The Sixth Sense is going to be the main one. That is the next movie chronologically up. Uh, but we are also in that episode going to be covering Shaft, uh, Hotel Splendid pronunciation may vary i think that Uh, sounds right to me the magic pudding which i can't wait for uh (laughs) dinner with friends changing lanes about a boy and uh the aforementioned dirty deeds although i might have mentioned that off mic before that was another hard one to find i got it Um, 
we're going to be covering those. And that, there's some good ones in there. I, I personally uh, used to watch Changing Lanes a lot on HBO after school because it's one of those movies that they just showed a lot. So I'm pretty excited to uh, revisit that one. Well, I'll tell you, I have no idea what Changing Lanes is even about. It's so fun. It, it's it's uh, great. It's great. I won't say it because uh, you're going to find out who's in it and you're going to go, oh, good. <laughs> That's you're literally going to you're going to uh, tap the tips of your fingers together and go. Excellent. Delightful. I look forward to it. Like a phoenix rising. Yes. Cool. Well, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, listeners. We'll catch you on the flip side. Catch you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.